This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, old-fashioned AM radio withstood Cyclone Gabriel while other tech withered under the onslaught, and it proved an information lifeline for many when it mattered. So why is its future now in doubt? Because of an obscure arrangement to put the proceedings of Parliament on the air. Also, is this primetime TV show breaking the rules of broadcasting simply because of one word in its title? You can't control a horse all the time. I think someone could get hurt. But before all that, we look at a new look back on how and why the occupation of Parliament unravelled in violence a year ago, and we ask, how should media respond next time people take a big stand on an issue that divides society? Uh, to my right here, and a lot of the cars that they were staying in have been towed and seized as well. So unless police are able to arrest their way through this very large cr- large crowd this evening, you're going to have hundreds of people still out on the street spoiling for a fight, and that could get messy. And there are hundreds and hundreds of police down there as well at the same time, so hopefully it all turns out OK. That was TVNZ One News on the 2nd of March 2022, the day the occupation of Parliament came to an end after almost a month. And the messiness that reporter Kristen Hall predicted there did indeed play out, and it spread beyond the parliamentary precinct that day. And whether it all turned out OK in the end, as Simon Dallow said there, really depends on where you stood on the issues involved and the conduct of those who were protesting at that time. TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was also startled by the scene she'd seen in central Wellington later that day. Did you ever imagine that you would witness scenes like this in New Zealand? Uh, honestly, no. And, and I think that's the thing that's a little bit challenging. And I, I think as a journalist, you always want to be a bit low-key about these things and perhaps reflect on them later. But it's just not a scene that we thought we'd ever seen here. It's a different type of protest. It's a very foreign type of protest that's here. It's pretty... But while it may have felt foreign, that homegrown chaos was also seen by people all over the country and by Kiwis in foreign fields too, because several of our media outlets live-streamed hours of coverage of it. The public were certainly interested in those images. Civil servants rubbernecking digitally from the safety of their workstations reportedly strained the servers of government departments. But some of the media at the time questioned the real public interest in airing all of this because they said it amplified unfiltered misinformation and the extremism of the protesters, whose numbers were actually dwindling at that point. Now, at the time, the editor of Stuff's Dominion Post, Anna Fifield, told Media Watch that it wasn't just a case of pointing a camera or two at the drama and letting it roll online. We have a duty to report a relatively big protest on the grounds of Parliament that is disrupting our city, but I'm really conscious that we need to do it in a way that does not amplify their messages. As you say, they're very fringe most entirely based on misinformation and disinformation. So we have been taking steps to make sure that we don't amplify their conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, we are careful in the way we crop photos. A lot of that live stream has been focused on the police and what they are doing to try to maintain security at Parliament. Um, And so, yeah, I think that we have a duty to cover it, but in in a careful and sober way. And I hope we got that balance right this week. Anna Fifield also said a year ago that others were airing the occupation online for propaganda purposes and without any journalistic ethics in the mix at all. And, she added, all this would end up being a part of our history. Just imagine if we had such full footage in the archives from undeniably historic protests in 1981 or even 1951. 
Well, RNZ lately has been looking back at its archive video of the occupation last year for the new documentary Boiling Point, which was released last Thursday on the anniversary of the occupation's chaotic end. The protesters and police have been pushing against each other for ages. And then suddenly I just see a police officer rip to the ground and pulled right in amongst the protesters. And these guys just bear down on him, kicking him. And I remember seeing him on the ground and just thinking, one bad hit to the back of his head and he's gone. Now, Boiling Point isn't the first film to try and sum up what happened at that time retrospectively. Stuff's documentary Fire and Fury last year looked back at that too, as well as the misinformation that fueled it. And while there's some of the fire and fury in the scenes of Boiling Point, the focus is on why and how it all came to an end in the way it did. I'll be honest with you, I don't like to say it, but I think violent, violent, yeah, violently... And Boiling Point also portrays the dissonance among the crowd, not all of whom wanted confrontation. That's what they want. Don't throw shit. Though some did specifically want to confront the news media. This woman starts screaming at me, calling me a, a mainstream, swinging this camping chair at me. And all these other people start turning on me as well. Get out, mainstream media, get out! Get out of here! Out. Out. Watch out, guys, watch out! Literally watch out. While there's police behind her, charging and taking over the whole lawn, they still chose to turn on me. And I just could not wrap my head around that. Get that mainstream out of your own That was the voice of RNZ visual journalist Angus Drever, who not only captured some of the compelling footage in the documentary Boiling Point at some personal risk, he also directed it, working alongside John Hartevelt, who just this week was appointed as RNZ's executive editor for the in-depth journalism unit. The events were, whilst they were over a number of weeks, three weeks, almost almost a month, they were pretty frenetic, actually, at the time. You know, the live news nature of live, live news coverage was such that it was a lot for people to, to try and soak up all at once. And then there was a bit of reflection in the immediate aftermath. But then, of course, you know, the news cycle moves on and um, we're on to the next thing. So a year hence is probably a good moment to pause and look back and actually just slowly and carefully digest the images that, that we all saw. The second kind of unique thing that we had here was that um, Angus was very much a part of um, that coverage at the time and and collected a lot of pretty arresting footage, um, unique perspectives, um, many of which there just simply wasn't space to put to air um, and, and to get an audience for at the time. So um, Angus and, and, uh, and Corin had an idea to um, go back over a, a lot of what was collected and and put something long form together that enabled us to achieve that kind of look back over what undeniably was a really extraordinary moment in time for this country. Yeah, and Angus, as John mentioned there, you people, I mean, you were there in the cast of thousands of people watching you and everybody else on these live streams and and watching this whole thing unfold. I mean, did you have a feeling then people might get the wrong idea of what happened if they don't watch something that's a bit more curated that you've now had the opportunity to do? 
Yeah, no, I definitely had that feeling. And so you could have a camera live streaming from one perspective and you're going to miss all these other things. Um, and it's something you can get wrong in the documentary. If you don't get a shot from this street, you might miss some really important context. You might get the balance wrong. So it's something that we really wanted to take our time with and make sure that we told a story that um, was fair representation and that we felt really comfortable with it rather than you know, live streaming from one perspective for 12 hours and saying, hey, that's the truth. Well, John, most of the people speaking are RNZ staff, and including you know Angus, who was there, of course. Um, but there's also a couple of uh, contributions from eyewitnesses who, who gave their accounts in the media at the time. So, for example, former MP and diplomat Tim Grosser, um, who lived nearby, uh, appears in Boiling Point. And he says, look, uh, at times he feared we might be seeing a repeat of January the 6th uh, mm. in Washington. Did that actually influence what you were trying to put together with Boiling Point? The parallels um, with the US were clear to all of us. I mean, uh, it was something that was talked about at the time. And so, and, it, and we did, you know, have a particular discussion around the title as well, you know, so the, the full version of the um, title for the documentary is Boiling Point March 2, um, which is a, um, a kind of subtle nod um, to those parallels with, um, with DC. So, but I wouldn't say that we kind of went, spent hours poring over um, examples of other documentaries from from the states that have looked, you know, blow by blow. And um, Angus and Corin had a really clear idea of the type of documentary that they wanted to make. To be brutally, completely honest, I mean, we don't have the kind of resources to do that, that really, really detailed, um, intense kind of visual investigative journalism. Yeah, you, mean, you mentioned their Corin Dan's role, so as uh, both presenter and, and producing the, the documentary. And, and, you know, his voice is fairly familiar when you listen to it. It gives it the feel of a kind of... Uh, traditional sort of TV documentary in a way. But one thing that I think is different, and Angus, it's good that you're here with me, is that, you know, the camera person in this is often just kind of anonymous, just provides the vision for this stuff, and we, you know, we have a presenter's track over it, often even left out of the editing process. I mean, this one's different. You directed it. I mean, was this a conscious decision that you wanted that role and wider input? Yeah, it was a conscious decision, but to an extent it was made for us. Um, ideally, in a documentary, you know, the cameraman's this, this invisible hand that's sort of guiding the audience to the, the truth and the visuals. But um, on the ground, while I was filming, the, the fourth wall was being broken constantly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, people were talking to me, and I felt like uh, I would have to explain, okay, I moved over here because this thing was happening. And when that lady attacked me, it felt like this. And I think if I hadn't said anything it would have felt weird and almost more dishonest to pretend like I wasn't feeling anything mm -hmm. um, and it was yeah important to explain even just my movements and why I moved from Hill Street over to the Court of Appeal and things like that. Yeah John as a, a sort of executive editor I mean these days some reports when they're presented the presenter will make a point of saying who shot it and not just you know the journalist whose voice or face is on it. Is this a, a kind of idea whose time has come in our media and that we should acknowledge that the gathering of the images is editorially significant. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it's... Storytelling is constantly evolving um, and, and, you know, the platforms that um, people are, are getting their news and information and entertainment from, um, social media probably being the obvious one, um, set a kind of new set of expectations and, and habits and uh, for, for people when they're, when they're watching video in particular. Um, so I think there is a kind of a natural um, evolution there, uh, but I would put, yeah, really very much put the emphasis on natural. So 
I think in the in this case it was it was really an obvious thing to it was sort of what part of what made this documentary special was was the Angus part of it. I mean, here's a guy um, who's almost you know a few months into the job um, as, as a journalist who's um, thrust into the thick of a massive news story and and putting himself in in physical danger and get these remarkable images, you cannot help but take that to be part of the story. Um, so it would be almost um, weird to to remove Angus from that. Um, so we kind of leant into it. It must have been really tempting to simply you know, trawl back through all the footage that you and colleagues shot, um, pick out the most alarming or confronting, the most spectacular stuff, if I can put it like that. But look, in my opinion, some of the more revealing scenes in it are ones where you see a bit of the dissonance within the crowd. So you could see someone, for example, um, confronting the crowd, yelling about, you police, you know, you're Nazis, and this is the Holocaust, and things like that. And someone walking up to him saying, don't talk about the Holocaust. You you could see that dissonance within the crowd and about how they presented themselves. Was that also a conscious choice that you wanted to show that? Yeah, and I think that was the thing that excited me more than, you know, the shots of explosions and things like that. You know, that, that stuff's we've all seen the shots of the playground burning and that's the thing I think is burnt in our brains but we didn't really get to see too much from the live streams of those sort of sorts of conversations and I think that stuff is really interesting and and then seeing people online or on the street talking about the entire group as this one mob that all felt the same way and when um, I couldn't help but be a little frustrated because I could see that there were different groups and there were interactions within the protesters. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. You know, that to me is the power of visual journalism in many ways because there was a lot of stuff written at the time that kind of referenced, you know, there was complexity to the group, even on the, the last day and in the final hours. One of the scenes that really stands out for me is where you have this young guy biffing this huge lug of um, hunk of concrete into the ground as hard as he can to break it up. And then you have this other guy kind of like with his back to the police and, and it's, he's facing this group of completely lawless um, uh, people remonstrating with them that, hey, you, you know, you've got to stop this. And it's just, you cannot help but be compelled by that. It's, it's remarkable footage. This isn't the first film to have a, a look at this in a documentary way. Uh, stuff got in first, if you like, with the, the documentary Fire and Fury. They zeroed in on some of the misinformation, the stuff in the background. But they also followed up with some of the people in the thick of it. Did you actually think about that, John, about including some of those people going back to them and, and, and rethink that day from their perspective as well? We set out to make a documentary that is what it is um, and, and, and focuses very much on the timeline of events on that final day. Um, if we had uh, more time and, and more people had been able to call in to work on the documentary, then absolutely we, that, those are things that we would have done. I mean, I think you're that, right. That's that, a really different decision, though, eh? because people get upset about that, about you know, platforming is the word that gets used, you know, if you, you know, giving them an opportunity to say those things that some people found so offensive and disruptive and destructive and so yeah, on. I mean, I think that's a natural... Um, it's good to have those discussions and, and interrogate that, um, but it's absolutely a natural thing to do. I mean, a year on to go back and, and talk to these people and um, get some understanding of how their thinking may or may not have evolved. You know, and I think in a lot of cases it's probably hardened. The resolve and the kind of views have, have hardened. 
and I think that, that that work is still to be done. There's still more conversations to be had. There's still more reporting to do on this story. It wasn't an editorial decision to not do that, I guess, it's, if that probably ultimately answers your question. Angus, having done this, having spent all this time on it, <laughs> having to revisit it a year ago, it was a stressful experience for you and everyone in the media who had to be in the thick of it. Uh, do you consider you're kind of done with this? And uh, maybe if there is more reporting to do, perhaps you don't want to be the one to have to make them? Yeah, to be honest, um, that is kind of how I feel. It's been March 2nd, 2022, pretty much every day for the last year. <laughs> um, there have been times when it's been really hard to go back and, and revisit it. But I remember the first couple of months I couldn't watch the footage for more than 10 minutes or so before I needed to go for a walk or something like that. And it got better, but actually towards the end where it all started to come together, those sort of panicky feelings started to come back and I sort of took that as a sign that, hey, we're probably getting that right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm personally pretty happy to, to move on. Well, John, um, it is possible we'll see something like this in the future where hundreds of people want to take on the government over some issue that's um, divided us. You know, Is there anything we can learn from this? Like how should we go about trying to cover this so that we're actually in a position to create something later that yeah, makes I mean, sense and really records it in a, in a way that helps people understand it? I don't know that I have a, a profound golden rule that has come out of covering an event like this. But no, no template for it, is there really? No, but I, I mean, I, I do know that there is a clear recognition now that the next big story is is, is at any moment <laughs> before us. And so we're thinking about that a lot, both in terms of the way that we cover our stories, but also our people, you know, taking care of our journalists. So there's, yeah, and also I think, that I suppose there is a golden rule, but it's not a new one, is to just continually have an open mind about the way we're covering stories and, and, and be challenged on the way that we're making our decisions and, and who we are platforming. Um, it's really important that we that we continue to talk about that and, and have open and frank discussions about the right thing. Mm. And actually, you're in a position to do something about that. Just coincidentally, this week you were appointed as the executive editor of RNZ's in-depth team. But some listeners might be thinking, well, you know, hopefully uh, most of what RNZ does is uh, at least in some degree of depth. Um, so for, for those who might be curious, what exactly does that mean? How is it distinct from the rest of RNZ's journalism and what might you able to, to do in that job you couldn't do elsewhere in, in the business? There's probably a couple of layers to it. Um, one is that there is a, a formal in-depth team, um, relatively small team, but um, we have a handful of um, really top, highly experienced uh, investigative journalists um, who are um, reporting to me and we're, we're identifying um, stories that we want to break um, and spending a good amount of time reporting those stories out to the full extent uh, that we need to and telling them um, across our platforms, um, digital Radio, social media, the whole, the whole um, gamut. So, sort of removed from the day to day. Exactly. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so that those reporters, um, and you know, there's graphic designer in there, data journalist as well, camera operator. I mean, the other part of it is that um, we're here. I'm here, and the whole team is here, is to support um, journalists from all across the organisation. Um, and, and telling those stories with greater depth. Um, and that, that's a time thing, um, but it's also a, um, a resource thing in terms of, uh, as I say, the, the power of visual storytelling. You know, how can we um, power up the story more and kind of connect it to our audiences um, with the use of a really skilled um, um, visual journalist, um, a graphic designer, data journalist, um, and, and hopefully, you know, I can bring a bit of 
um, some, something to the, to the table as well um, to tell those stories in, in a bit a bit more depth. Um, so that that, that is both break, breaking original stories and also you know existing issues and and um, and stories at the time, adding an, layers of value um, and information to to those um, major stories. Mm. And finally then, Angus, uh, you can take a bit of a breath now, as you say, March the 2nd every day for the last year. doesn't <laughs> sound that great. Uh, but look, in, in, uh, I know you had one particular encounter on that day where um, a woman came at you swinging a camping chair, I mm. think, and you, you, know, you said at the time it struggled to sort of get your head around why, with all the things that were going on, she'd want to go for you. I think you were being called a mainstream mm. uh, in yeah. that particular encounter. So pretty clear what, what was motivating that, I suppose, probably not personal. But have you now perhaps got your head around that sort of thing a little more? I feel like it was probably just an element of control. I mean, this is their home for three weeks, and it, they were losing it. So I, I think she couldn't fight off the wall of police that were coming down towards them, but she could swing a chair at a mainstream media person. Um, so I, I think it was about control and doing something practical, even though it was, you know, ultimately pretty pointless. That was RNZ visual journalist Angus Drever who directed RNZ's video documentary Boiling Point and we also heard there from its executive editor John Hartevelt who, as you heard there, was just this week appointed as executive editor of RNZ's in-depth journalism unit. And you can see Boiling Point, which was presented and produced by Corin Dan, on the RNZ website in the podcasts and series section where you'll also find photo essays and follow-up features on the occupation of Parliament and how it all came to an end a year ago this week. Back on the 19th of February, Media Watch looked at media coverage of Cyclone Gabriel, and that programme included some audio of News Talk ZB listeners who got in touch with the network before the cyclone made landfall to say the media were overstating the danger. And I noted that on the day before that, which was Sunday the 12th of February, News Talk ZB host Tim Beveridge on his show The Weekend Collective had aired his own reservations about that. We need to take a bit of a breath in the media with our hyperbole and the motive language around it because I'm not sure if it's really uh, particularly helpful. Privately, I just look at some of the coverage and go, well, this is just getting ridiculous. But I didn't mention in the Media Watch programme that Tim Beveridge's comment there was made with reference to the anxiety of Aucklanders who had been hit by flooding just a fortnight earlier and that Tim Beveridge had also added this qualification on the air just before. It's a tricky role to be working in the media uh, with discussions around storms and weather and things like that. Um, so I, I do sort of offer these um, comments with a degree of caution in my own, um, in my mind, because uh, we want people to be prepared and we want people to take um, weather events seriously. And elsewhere in his programme that day on News Talk ZB, Tim Beveridge also expressed clear concern about Cyclone Gabriel's potential impact. Now, after airing Tim Beveridge's comment without that context, Media Watch went on to describe as trivialising other comments by other News Talk ZB hosts which were broadcast after Cyclone Gabriel had made landfall. And this wrongly implied that Tim Beveridge's comments were also trivial. Now, that wasn't intended, but not enough care was taken to ensure that that distinction was clear. So, RNZ apologises to Tim Beveridge for that lapse, and I'm happy to put the record straight on that here on Media Watch today. Well, 
Last weekend here on Media Watch, we took a look at how our infrastructure is taken for granted when it works, even if it's suboptimal and a bit underfunded. But after the recent Auckland floods and Cyclone Gabriel, it's become a hot topic in our media, especially the bits that didn't cope in an emergency. And one of those bits was our communications network, increasingly based on digital technology, which proved far from robust when Gabriel hit, as TVNZ's Fenner Owen reported on the Q&A show two weekends ago. No cellular connection means civil defence alerts can't get through, and neither can 111 calls. Computer scientist Dr Ulrich Speidel has concerns that emergency services have been scaling back their own radio networks. And they've started issuing emergency vehicles um, with uh, cell phones for communication. And of course now if the mobile phone network, which is not designed for resiliency, goes down, then we immediately end up in this situation that it also affects emergency services um, in, in a lot of area. But why exactly was it that those critical cell phone towers were insufficiently resilient? They rely on electricity to work. So if the power's cut, they have an inbuilt uh, contingency battery life of four to eight hours, and then after that, you're on your own. After that on Q&A, telco industry spokesperson Paul Brislin subsequently said that this was really a power supply problem and not a failure of the technology or the actual mobile phone towers, and power suppliers would have to up their emergency game too. But one format that did prove resilient was old-fashioned analogue radio, which kept on transmitting when other forms failed or ran out of battery power. And one reason for that was that they also run on diesel. And that's the reason News Talk ZB was asking on-air for fuel like this to stay on air in Hawke's Bay during the crisis. And we need to get the generator going. To get the generator going, we need diesel. You can't get diesel. There's no power to pump it. So if you're on a farm or something like that and you've got diesel spare, um, then we're interested. Now, shortly after that, the quite literally powerless editor of Hawke's Bay Today newspaper, Chris Hyde, told MediaWatch this. As soon as I can, I am going out and buying a transistor radio, Colin. Um, yep, <laughs> I didn't have one at home. Oh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I didn't. <laughs> well, after Cyclone Gabriel had done its worst, RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, told me this here on MediaWatch two weekends ago. This will uh, sharpen the minds of, of people on just how important legacy platforms like AM transmission are in civil defence emergencies like the one that we've had. We are going to need to think very carefully about how we provide the belt and braces in terms of broadcasting infrastructure for this country as a result of this. And it seems that right now there is a fair bit to be thought through. Just last Wednesday, Morning Report listeners heard this on RNZ National. The AM radio network that's been a lifeline during Cyclone Gabrielle faces losing most of the government funding that keeps it running. But its operator, RNZ, says the AM network must be kept going somehow. On the 15th of February, when Cyclone Gabrielle was still blowing in the wind, Parliament's clerk of the House, David Wilson, told a parliamentary select committee that he might have to cut a costly contract to broadcast parliamentary proceedings on AM radio after 87 years on the air. And the next day, the New Zealand Herald's Thomas Coughlin reported that that meant radio silence could come as soon as the next financial year on July the 1st, unless additional funding could be found in the next budget in May. 
Another broadcast about Parliament, also paid for by the Office of the Clerk and also aired by RNZ, is the weekly programme The House. And in last Sunday's edition, the Clerk David Wilson told presenter Phil Smith that his spending can't exceed the Office's annual appropriation. He said that costs have gone up, in part because of streaming select committees online as well now, and streaming online sessions of Parliament during the pandemic also cost him some money. So the AM radio contract, he said, might have to go now to make ends meet. The office's budget's around uh, $20 million a year. We have a few big-ticket items that we pay for. The uh, radio broadcaster's one, the television broadcaster's one, and then staff salaries the other. Those are sort of the, the three large sums of money we deal with. And, uh, yeah, I have to think about how we can fit within our, our appropriation, the amount of money that Parliament votes us every year. So there's going to have to be some reduction in there. The specific reduction was actually stopping radio broadcasts at Parliament. That's right, yeah. So that costs us about $1.3 million a year. And that is uh, just a, a cost we can no longer carry. And so we really had to choose between one of those three things. The radio contract is coming up for renewal, so that to some degree puts sort of, sort of first in the firing line. But it's not something I willingly do, and I, I would you know, like to keep it going if we can find a way of doing that. But if they don't or can't find a way to cover the cost, what then? Well, this week, RNZ's Phil Pennington asked RNZ's Chief Executive Paul Thompson about that. Does that place the AM network operation from RNZ in any jeopardy? Uh, it puts a huge question mark on its sustainability because the, the money that the clerk of the house pays for us to broadcast Parliament underpins the entire network. But we're going to have to come up with a solution and no final decisions have been made yet around funding. Um, but it is um, you know, an irony that at a in a week when we, New Zealand got probably one of its biggest ever lessons about the importance of AM, that we have this challenge around its viability. So we're going to have to find a way through. But it absolutely puts a lot of pressure on us as an organisation. We won't be able to pick up the cost. It's a $1.3 million contract. The parliamentary contract is a significant contributor to RNZ being able to maintain the AM network nationally. If that money's not available, closing the network is not going to be at all feasible. We're going to have to come up with another solution. So I think as soon as I know more, I'll be able to share it, but we're going to work, our be work as hard as we can to get that solution. People at the sharp end who are in the nooks and crannies, what would you say to them? And they're going, oh, heck, this might end. What can you say to them? This is such a, an, an important asset for New Zealand. It's a truly um, critical information lifeline. We're going to have to find a way of keeping it going. And remember, it's not just RNZ's AM that is broadcast on our infrastructure. A lot of other radio stations, commercial and community, iwi radio, use our infrastructure as well. So we're going to have to find a way through. That was RNZ's Chief Executive Paul Thompson with RNZ's Phil Pennington asking the questions earlier this week. And Morning Report listeners might have heard bits of that in Phil's report on the issue on Morning Report last Wednesday. And Phil Pennington's follow-up report on all this on RNZ's website this week had some feedback from listeners fearful about what they heard. For instance, one called Cam wrote in to say this. I live in Central Hawke's Bay. AM is the only strong signal. Do not stop broadcasting on that frequency. And Glenn in Gisborne got in touch with this. RNZFM was off air in Gisborne for two days during Gabriel, but RNZ on AM kept going. It absolutely must be kept. And there was plenty more like that.
Now, one important thing to note here is that there are, in fact, two AM networks run by RNZ. One carries RNZ National, and the other carries Parliament when it's sitting, as well as Southern Star and its religious programming. Now, that network is broadcast from fewer transmission sites and on different frequencies across different parts of the country. RNZ's Phil Pennington discovered for himself how handy that AM transmission can be when he was dispatched from Wellington to Hawke's Bay when Cyclone Gabriel struck, and several times on the road he said he had to switch to AM when the FM transmission faded away. And this week Phil also reported that RNZ had shut down ageing transmission facilities in Northland last year, and that prompted the government then to urgently inject almost $1.5 million for upgrades. Now, at that time, the Minister for Emergency Management, Kieran McAnulty, said that Northland's exposure to hazards and its limited cellular service made Northland especially reliant on AM radio. And he added that radio is a critical information channel to reach New Zealanders in an emergency. So, with that in mind, Phil Pennington this week asked the Minister and his National Emergency Management Agency to comment on the future of the AM networks, though his request was referred to the Broadcasting Minister, Willie Jackson. Now, Willie Jackson is also the Minister of Māori Development, and he oversees funding and strategy for Māori broadcasting, including for Te Whakaruruho, the umbrella group of iwi radio broadcasters around the country. Now, after the government scrapped his plan for a new public media entity last month, the Prime Minister said Willie Jackson would have to go back to Cabinet with a new plan to address RNZ's future funding needs. So will AM Radio and its funding be part of the plan? Well, this week we wanted to ask the Broadcasting Minister that and what discussions about the funding of AM Radio transmission have taken place after Cyclone Gabriel and is the Minister concerned now that the budget constraints in the Office of the Clerk at Parliament could threaten the maintenance and operation of AM radio services from RNZ's AM transmission sites. Well, Willie Jackson was one of the ministers on the ground in the regions hit by Cyclone Gabriel lately and overseeing the government's emergency response, and he hasn't been made available for an interview. But his office supplied a statement citing that intervention in Northland last year and reiterating that AM transmission is a vital piece of infrastructure. And... Long-term work to develop funding approaches is also underway to ensure RNZ's AM transmission strategy continues. And the Minister is considering this as part of a package to strengthen public media and will be returning to Cabinet with proposals soon. And for its part, the National Emergency Management Agency told RNZ's Phil Pennington this week it would monitor any potential emergency management impacts of any changes to radio coverage. Now, Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, also says it's working closely with NEMA and RNZ to ensure that radio services, including AM transmission, are always available for people in an emergency. So, it seems there is a will to find a way, but finding out who finds the way and when it will be found and how much it might cost, well, that has yet to be found out. And finally in Media Watch this weekend, way back in June 2020, TVNZ's One News reported on the biggest day in the dairy farming calendar, the one on which thousands of share milkers simultaneously move stock. And that was more complicated than usual in 2020 because of COVID restrictions. But broadcasting the traditional name for that on One News, Gypsy Day, ended up complicating the issue for TVNZ. A viewer complained that this breached the discrimination and denigration standard because the term was offensive to one of our smallest and least visible ethnic and cultural communities. 
Now, TVNZ disagreed and pointed out that this was a term that's commonly used in farming and the media, and no members of that community were even referred to in that news item, let alone denigrated, and the Broadcasting Standards Authority acknowledged all that when it considered the viewer's complaint. But the authority also said that term is used as a slur that some people liken to the N-word when describing African Americans, and its use may embed existing negative stereotypes, devaluing the reputation of the Roma community and encouraging discrimination against it. And in December 2020, the authority concluded TVNZ News was in breach of the discrimination and denigration standard, and that TVNZ and other broadcasters could avoid unintended harm by not using the G-word in future. Yet, just one day after issuing that, TVNZ aired this. But one thing's for certain. A gypsy Christmas is never without its drama. Not like that, Jesus, mommy! Oh, we get locked up. Yeah. And just one month after My Big Fat Gypsy Christmas... TVNZ aired the series Big Fat Gypsy Weddings. With unprecedented access to the UK's most secretive communities. They don't like anybody knowing anything about them at all. They even have their own language. This series will take you to the very heart of gypsy life. And right now, on Tuesdays in primetime on TVNZ1, you can also see Here Come the Gypsies. For hundreds of years, gypsies and travellers have called the British Isles their home. There's five, maybe six generations of my family living on the road. Battling to keep their unique way of life. TBNZ's blurb for this series says it uncovers the hidden world of this modern community and shows viewers their fight to keep their culture alive in the UK. And it does but it also depicts some of those practices that feed into those negative stereotypes like bare-knuckle fighting, excessive drinking, fortune-telling for cash, and so on. And according to UK media reports about the series, the watchdog there, Ofcom, received 50 complaints after the first episode aired back in 2021. But some viewers also complained to the UK press that the show glamorised the community and endorsed the Roma lifestyle, in spite of the fact that the show actually gave a voice to local folks who didn't approve of it at all. But some local residents don't appreciate the party atmosphere. They drive through the town uh, very fast and reckless. They're big horses, so they're very intimidating. You can't control a horse all the time. I think someone could get hurt. Just goes to show, I suppose, that you can't please or offend all of the people all the time on TV. So, in the end, is TVNZ now flouting the BSA's guidance by screening the likes of Here Come the Gypsies Here after TVNZ News was told it shouldn't even use the G-word in a news story about farming? Well, some media, and indeed some farming organisations too, had already adopted the term moving day instead by the time the BSA had made that ruling in late 2020, in which it pointed out that TVNZ did have an alternative term to use, whereas TVNZ could scarcely scrub the G-word from the title of an imported TV series all about the G's. Now, incidentally, some UK news reports also drew complaints from viewers about cruelty to horses depicted in this new series, though Media Watch has yet to see any of that in the episodes that have screened so far. Though this week there was some footage we'll find hard to unsee of a guy called Romani Gypsy Lee, the horse dentist, plying his trade of filing down horses' teeth. He's a nervous sort of horse. (laughs) 
back, 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 gently, gently, good luck. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night on RNZ National with Midweek Media Watch during nights, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.